with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Good afternoon, evening, slash morning, depending on who you are, and welcome to Ghost Chronicles International. I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper of the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, the unbelievable, the mystical, the magical, the macabre, New England's own Van Helsink, and with me, my co-host, all the way in that beautiful countryside of Wales, is the gold standard in ghost hunting and all right chap mr steve parsons all right chap mm. that's a greeting over here well good see i was greeting you yeah all right chap all right chap that's what we say <clears throat> which i'm sure you know being uh, a big fan of downton uh, i was on Marla's show the other day and she said how the hell did you become a fan of Fountain? <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. I blame my wife. <laughs> she well, put it on yeah. while I was working. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's how we live over here, you know. Mm -hmm. We we whip the servants and, uh, yeah. yeah. So you are coming over here in the end, the very end of September, the beginning of the first week of uh, October. Well, that's the plan, unless uh, unless you lot manage to start a war with China. Oh, that doesn't matter. Got to fight a war with somebody. We get itchy after a while. Besides, the election's coming up, so we want to rally the troops. Is, is that why? I, well, I mean, is that why she's gone? You know what? They always it's it, in in American politics. It's always about deflection. Uh, you know, if you got problems, we'll we'll uh, you know we'll deflect it onto something else. Hey, they I mean, cool way of keeping that president of yours under wraps. He's got mm. COVID again, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so uh, yeah, so you are coming over here uh, am, in, yes. in uh, uh, September thirtieth, uh, October first, and October second. We will be working together on our eleventh or twelfth Spirit Quest uh, paranormal retreat. Uh, and this year, the theme is the Twilight Zone. It's the 11th one, of which I've done 10. Okay. Is it the 11th? I'm not sure. No, it's the 11th. Last year was the 10th. I'm not sure about that. No, I am. No, sorry. No, it's the 12th. I've done 11. That's right. No, I've done 10. Because I've done them without I, you. No, you've done one without me. Just one? I'm trying to think. We had Karen Keith. And then who was the next? You? No. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. No, I was, yeah, I was next. No, no, because uh, Richard. Uh, uh, was he before Karen? I don't know. Richard actually never did he. Richard? No, Richard didn't. Spirit, Richard's didn't never do done Spirit Quest. No, he's never done it. But he was over. I don't know. It's confusing. I mean, David? I could go, go back to it. David Wells, that's right. He, well, no, I don't know if he did Spirit Quest either. 
I don't, I don't know. Think he did. It's all, you know, there's so many of them. It's, it's, well, the first one I did was in July, and then we moved it to September. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, because that was hard. Because it was too bloody hot. Oh, God, was it a little bloody hot? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so, uh, anyways, you'll be coming over. Check out our website, itigoesproject.com, the letter N, the letter E, ghostproject.com, and we'll have all the events that you and I will be working on together. And you can come over and see Steve in person uh, here in the States. So uh, check that out. Uh, we'll be that's, up. that's not to be missed. I know it isn't. I mean, I look forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's the accent. Yeah. Full, fully upgraded, Steve, as well. Oh, very good. Very yep. good. Fully upgraded. The bionic man strikes again. It will be. Well, it Any will of- be by then. Just got a couple of more things to tweak. Anyway, you know, I mean, you and I, I mean, I, you know, I I hate titles, but, you know, I. I oh, come on. I, you're starting to sound like Biden now. Spit it out. No, it, it is. It's like, you know, scientists. I always, sometimes I get uncomfortable using that word scientist referring to myself. But in, in reality, uh, I am a scientist, as, as you are as well. And, I, yeah, well, yes, but. See, I know. No. See, it's the same way yeah. with you, right? Yeah. We got stuck with that little thing. Yeah, it, it's kind of like, because what we do is science, and you don't have to be a scientist to do science. A monkey can do science. Well, if but... you do science, you're a scientist, aren't you? I guess so. <laughs> I've, I've always preferred, you know, like being more specific than scientist. Um, okay, I'll go on with that. I'll talk about uh, a physicist but actually in reality i think i prefer you know i'm more drawn to engineering okay that's fair fair enough because um i think that more accurately sums up you know environmental engineering or environmental science or the physical science science see so i i do it i mean i've studied you know all the sciences, which you know, yeah. by the way, doesn't make me an expert in any of them. No, well, all, all mine are the physical sciences. Yes. You know, yeah. Um, so they relate to material things. So, anyways, what the gist I was getting at is yeah. that a what lot of people, a lot of people, don't understand. Uh, they allow their logic to overlook scientific investigation, which doesn't make sense. At all. And they'll sit there and argue with it. Lou and I got in a big argument on, on the, the morning show uh, because I was talking about uh, for the last couple of weeks. We, first, last week, we talked about lightning and, and uh, the Spark Ranger who got hit seven times and some other stuff and ball lightning. And, and this year, this is, we started, uh, we finished that off and was talking about things that fell from the sky, like the, the rock throwing demon from Portsmouth. And uh, anyways, but. I came across this thing about uh, the sunset of the first millennium. And I was, you know, uh, telling Steve, according to this observatory and, and this thing that was occurred, that the first sunrise here in the United States was in Nantucket and not on Cadillac Mountain in Maine. And he continued to argue with me because he looked at a map. And if you look at a map, of course, you see that Cadillac Mountain uh, which, by the way, is taller than the, the bluffs where the first sunrise was recorded. And it's also further east 
than Nantucket as well. So he said that couldn't possibly be. Uh, except, except if it's taller, then it would be because the Earth is curved. The Earth is curved, and it's also changing all the time. I mean, the, the planets revolve, the, everything revolves, uh, and, and you can see that in the sunrises. Uh, oh, yeah. For instance, uh, there's another uh, mountain, and I can't think of the name of it. It's in, uh, close to the Canadian border. And this sunrise on a certain day is the same sunrise as Miami Beach which you know, if you look at a map, you say there's no way possibly that I could because, you know, Miami Beach gets more sunrise, blah, 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 blah. But people don't understand the, the science and they just look at the, the logic. Oh, it's, it's lower. Well, it's, that's not science. I mean, that's geometry. That's, I that's know geometry. Big. Geometry, I, I know. Because, we, because yeah. you've, got, you've got the Earth is... is, is um, spherical. Well, it's not quite, but... Yeah, all right. To all, to all intents flat, and purposes. Right? It's not flat, right? No, it's not flat. To okay. all intents and purposes, it's a sphere. Okay. Uh, it's a sphere that rotates. It rotates with a tilt and a wobble. Yeah. Um, which means that, for example, here where I am, mm-hmm. um, on the shortest day of the year, the sun uh, rises almost on one side of the house. And on the longest day of the year, the sun rises on a different side of the house because the sunrise, the sun rises, they, we always say it rises in the east and sets in the west. Exactly, exactly. Well, actually, it doesn't. It, set, it, it varies between um, the northeast and the southeast right. and the northwest and the southwest. It swings exactly. back and forth. And you see that quite particularly here because we're about 10 degrees of latitude north of you mm-hmm. um, here in the here in the south of the UK. Uh, we're at latitude 51. Mm-hmm. Um, and the UK finishes, I think, around about latitude 54, which is equivalent to, you know, parts of northern Canada. Mm-hmm. And you, you um, can see that, you know, you don't have to be in your particular spot either. You can see that in in virtually any location oh you can but it's because like for instance in our porch my porch i have a window on one side of the porch which is at the end and then there's another window and the sun will come in and you'll see it come through the main window uh the east facing window but at certain times it's coming more to the north uh east side and so you you can actually see that yeah yeah but what i was getting at is because we are more northerly than you Mm -hmm. um this time of year in the summer, particularly around the solstice, which has just passed us um, about a month ago, the sun dips down below the horizon, but the sky doesn't get completely dark because it stays as like a, a twilight afterglow as the sun tracks about 30 degrees and then rises again. Mm-hmm. And you and can actually see that quite quite well whereas at the top of the top of the united kingdom and up towards scandinavia of course it doesn't set at all it just bobbles along bounces along the horizon exactly which you see in you know the 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 northern latitudes of canada um but further south that's an effect that you don't get um because you are you know some degrees of latitude further south yeah but it's you it's an effect what you were describing with the mountain 
it's an effect that you can often see before and immediately after sunrise or sunset, where the tops of, if it's uh, a day with high cirrus clouds or cumulonimbus clouds, the sun at the ground level has set, it's dipped down below the horizon and is, is effectively gone. Mm-hmm. Whereas at 10,000 feet, 15,000, 20,000 feet at the cloud tops, they can still be illuminated in full sunshine. Right. Um, as indeed, you know, air, aircraft and satellites. And that's but, why we see satellites. Right. But even on a clear day, I mean, there's a, so what the argument was, right, I, I gave him this information and I gave him the study that was done. You know, there was an observatory on Nantucket Island. There was another thing. And every, everybody in a certain locations reported the first sunrise they saw in the millennia. And so this was a study that was done. And remember, now, this was the millennium, only one particular date, not like every day of the year. So but he went right on to the Internet and said, where's the first sunrise in the east? And of course, it came up Cadillac Mountain. And that is generally true, uh, but not always true. And if it, you didn't do more reading, people would still argue, even though you you prove your your uh, point uh, scientifically. So I don't know. Anyway, it's it's just no, interesting it, it, that people it, it makes use sense that, because you're talking about one specific day. Yeah. Um, the, that was what twenty twenty two and a half years ago, when on that particular day the tilt of the Earth would be. I mean, it will repeat. Mm-hmm. It will have a, you know, it will happen again um, at that particular place on another day, perhaps you know, every few years, but depending on the tilt of the earth. Right. Exactly. And I mean, so, even, yeah, even he was like, you know, when I told him about the lift, lift, whatever the mountain is, the Canadian mountain. Uh, I'm going to call it the Canadian mountain because it's close to the Canadian border. And and Miami having the same sunrise. He says that's totally impossible. And so he went on the internet and says, when does the sunrise set at uh, here? And when does the sunrise set? And of course, it's, oh, see, it's in, in Florida. It's an hour early. And so I says, yeah, but that one particular day, go through a bunch of days. And, and sure enough, he went through it. And on a certain day, it was uh, equal. So, yeah, it, it, we look at a map and that's where we get all screwed up. We use our logical brain and we don't. Ah, but there is. A it's also the map is flat, too. Well, there is also an additional complication. Yes. And that being, for example, here in the United Kingdom, we use Greenwich Mean Time or British Summer Time, right. one or right. the other. But we're, we're now, on the same East Coast, so that, that's not And you have Eastern, Central, Mountain, blah, No, but blah, we, blah. We, this was the first sunrise in, in the... Uh, yeah, but... Uh, America, but so. Well, yeah. So you have uh, Eastern Time. Mm-hmm. Um, however, that time is set on uh, to be accurate. For example, here in the in, in the UK, as the name says, at Greenwich in London. Right now, Greenwich in London is considerably to our east, which means, in reality, the sunrise at Greenwich is a full twenty-two minutes earlier than it is here in the far west of the United Kingdom. Oh, sure. Even though we're in the same time zone, so when you when they record the time, they record the time at, but it's not adjusted for longitude. Mm-hmm. So, two places can have appear to have the same 
um, man-made, artificially created time. Yeah, but that's if you're you're committing that time, it's still that, that time. In other words, if that's the standard you're using, then that's the standard you're using. Well, not necessarily, because some observatories actually use what called yeah, space time. Okay. Which is which is way more accurate. Okay. Um, Fair enough. I mean, there's all different things you can, you know. I mean, it so on. so you would need you would need to know several variables, mm. um, you know, which are recorded somewhere or could be worked out uh, very, you know, relatively quickly. But you are in fact right that the sunrise can actually be at the same time. You know, for example, we're in the we're effectively in the same time zone as South Africa in the Southern Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Because the same bit of the planet is exposed to the to the sun. You know, the yeah. planet is a ball, north and south. They're just tilted away slightly at the moment, which means they're further away from the sun, but their time zone doesn't change. So um, it's 23.17 at night here in the UK and in South Africa. It's 23.17 at night in the Southern Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Although there it's summer and here um, there, there it's wow, winter yeah. and here it's summer and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the this is the problem that mankind has faced right from the very beginning, because, you know, we we live on a ball. Mm. Um, but the biggest the biggest problem with science as it pertains to the paranormal, really, is a misuse of the word and you see this so many times and we've talked about this before which is this idea of you have the group resident psychic and everything else if it's got a battery in it if it bleeps flashes or whirs it's science Mm. it's a scientific piece of equipment now you couldn't call a k2 meter a scientific um, device Uh, not by many stretches of your imagination Uh, uh, you could call it a scientific you device. You could call it a donkey. I, I know, but wait, 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 wait. Let me let me explain. And, and if I'm wrong, I, I'm, I'll I'll take oh, no. by you. Okay, so it is a scientific device because it's designed to measure what it measures. It's it's designed to measure at a certain tolerances. Uh, so it is designed whether it's you know, uh, as accurate as a tri-field meter, for instance. Uh, okay, I, I'll give you that. But, I mean, it, it's still an instrument. Agreed or not agreed that it's an instrument? I agree it's an instrument. It's not a scientific instrument because a scientific instrument is designed to work to a, ser- to a certain set of standards and give measurement, most important. That, see, that's what I was saying. It is... It is that, designed to certain it's part, set of standards. It's part, two. it's part two that's the important part. Go ahead. That the information it provides is to a recognized or compa- can, can be compared to a recognized standard scientific, you know, a, 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 a standard of some sort. Now, the problem with things like the K2 and other similar ghost hunting devices is if you look at the scale, you've got three or four colored lights yeah got the green one amber red lights mm-hmm. and you have an approximate scale that says that um the green is zero to two the amber mm-hmm. is two to five the red is five to ten right but there is no way of knowing where within that range it is 
or the calibration of it or the frequency it's measuring. So you're not actually measuring anything at all other than more of something. So more or less of something. More or less of something. But so therefore it's not providing you. I mean, any it was designed for microwaves, right? It was designed by safe range to say there is a lot of microwaves run away hmm. or have the door of your microwave fixed. Yeah, exactly. That was that was its sole raison d'être. Like like the uh, the cell sensor, the, the same thing. Yeah, but the information it provides, even though the cell sensor has a an analog scale, mm-hmm. is, is still uh, meaningless because the scale isn't calibrated. It's it's like the old VD VDU meter on some hi fi's. It's just more of something or less of something. Right. It just you know, so. To be a scientific instrument, I would argue that it has to give you some relatable information that you and can. And it's calibrated take. with the 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 uh, worldwide standards for uh, whatever there it's measuring. It, yeah, but it has to be accurate. It has to be reliable, and it has to be repeatable and relatable. You get ghosts talking on it all the time. That's pretty reliable. Well, reliability. <laughs> Relatability, <laughs> reliability. We could, dis- you know, it, it works. So mm. it's reliable. You, you know, if you, so you know, physically it's reliable. Mm-hmm. The information isn't. Right. Um, is it repeatable? We don't know because we it gives you no information about what it's measuring. So you don't know whether it's measuring a VHF signal or or. A, or a faulty plug, or a microwave door, uh, door seal being f- uh, broken. Is it relatable to something? Well, no, because we don't know what it's measuring. Mm-hmm. So it falls down on all, every cr- single criteria except, well, it's reliable. You know, you can own one for years and they, they will. And it is an instrument. It is an instrument. In the sense that, so so are dowsing rods an instrument? Well, yeah, by the same token. So isn't a hammer? Well, a hammer, right? Well, it could be a tool, but a, a, a yeah. hammer would be would be defined as a tool. Tool, but yeah. you could, you, I mean, you, you could hit a K two meter with a hammer. <laughs> Get the same result. Anyway, all right. So actually, on. You'd, you'd probably be more because you you could it would be repeatable. It's true. <laughs> it would be relatable. <laughs> I so, could do reliable damage to it. I, uh, you know, you always told me the Ghost Club was the oldest Ghost Club. Uh, it's the oldest currently uh, surviving. Mm. There were predecessors to it at Cambridge yeah, University. Oh, it's the, way before that. I found the Ghost Club in the second century. Well, are we talking about Ghost Club? I mean, just by title or people, an investigative group of individuals. Okay. I guess it was called, uh, it was Philo Sudes, uh, which talks of a ghost club. And it's ghost club is in the parenthesis like a title. So I'm, I'm not sure. Okay. Because it doesn't give me any more information than that. Well, you know, Back just in, reading things, Steve, really is pretty cool. It's interesting. I know, I know. Mm. The Ghost Club claims to have been founded in 1862. Yeah. Um, 
although there were predecessors at Cambridge University um, to it. The SPR also formed from similar um, roots at Cambridge, mm-hmm. but was officially um, uh, brought into being in 1882. Now, the difference between the two is that the, go- the SPR has been in continual existence since 1882 without break, without pause. Mm-hmm. But the Ghost Club, 1862, has actually folded and been reconstituted um, uh-huh. at least twice. So, uh, anyways, let me get just a quick mention on this one. This was, this was uh, described by uh, Syrian uh, satirist Luciana. And uh, it was a, according to this, it was a, uh, a group of, of individuals that discussed incidents of hauntings, psychic phenomena, and tried to puzzle out some explanations for them. Then that they, sounds exactly like what the Ghost Club did. Possibly this would be the earliest psycho research group. So this was kind of interesting. I had never even heard of this group before, but I found reading, you learn things. Yeah, well, I, w- I would argue, actually, that, that they would, that that sounds more like the Ghost Club than the SPR, because the Ghost Club, up until oh, the last couple of decades, was not a group that conducted investigations. It did not actively go out and carry out investigations. It was, in fact, a dinner club where people would gather and they would talk about uh, hauntings or ghosts that they had encountered or individually examined um, over over a meal and drinks, and then they would sit around and discuss it. Uh, that changed under the directorship of uh, Peter Wood, Peter Underwood, who um, gathered together some members of the Ghost Club, and they ca- did carry out their own investigations. Unlike the SPR, which was founded right from the very beginning, with an investigative component to it. Uh, and they were looking at, uh, as a group, investigating haunted houses back in the 1890s. Wow. Well, we got to take a break right now. So uh, I do want to talk about one other ghost club in, well, not ghost club, but possible uh, in, in 1681. That's early. Anyways, um, you're listening to Ghost Chronicles International with Steve Parsons and Ryan Kolick right here on Tojanet Radio and other places where... This fine podcast is being carried. We are brought to you by Circles of Wisdom, 386 Merrimack Street, Bethune, Massachusetts, the Glant Messier Family Law Group, and our very, very good friends on Ghost Chronicles Radio on Patreon. Join us on Patreon and get, uh, what, access to about 30 or more uh, videos you can only see there. Okay, we'll be right back after the following messages. Welcome to Tokinet, radio with a cutting edge. Do you have a paranormal event, book, or something else you want people to know about? 
then why not advertise it on Ghost Chronicles Radio? With over 150,000 downloads a month, get your message out to an audience that's interested in the subject. We have a plan at a cost that fits your needs. For more information, contact Ron Kolick at anyghostproject at comcast.net or call 978-455-6678. They're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They all talk ugly kooky, the Parrax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the Parrax family. They're strange. Unrestrained. So grab your favorite brew. It's time to rendezvous as we give awards to the Bear X family. And if you haven't realized by now that you're half an hour into Ghost Chronicles International's podcast, where have you been for the last half hour? Join join Ron and I as we discuss. What were we discussing? Mm, different things. Oh, yeah. The 2000 years of the Ghost Club. There you go. Anyways, um, so th- the next one that I wanted to talk about was a person I bet you you're very familiar with. He's often called the father of psychical research you want to guess no in england in england you might know that country in 1681 the right the right reverend joseph glanville yes sir what do you know about him steve oh well glanville uh you've described him he was a reverend he was a man of the cloth he was also uh, an eminent writer and an antiquarian uh, interest. In fact, interestingly, uh, Glanville predicted, I, I haven't got the exact prediction, mm-hmm. um, word for word, but Glanville predicted the advent of the mobile phone. Did he really? Almost unerringly. That, uh, I'm paraphrasing it, uh, but uh, I'm, funny enough, I was only reading it earlier today, but... Oh, isn't that um, fascinating? That, use, that using magnetic currents man will one day be able to communicate from one side of the planet to the other. Oh, wow. That's pretty damn good. And that pretty well describes wireless telegraphy and the mobile phone. Mm -hmm. But his paranormal interests were wide and diverse. And um, he was, in fact, a man of the sciences. And uh, he was particularly involved in a a very famous poltergeist case uh, called the Drummer of Tedworth. And this this took place um, in the latter half of the 17th century, almost, you know, as as it drew to a close. And a landowner, um, Edward Mompesson, was somewhat infuriated by a vagrant itinerant drummer. 
and on trumped up charges had him thrown into the town jail and his drum confiscated. Oh, what a bastard. Shortly afterwards, the Mompesson family at Tedworth were plagued by in the sound of incessant drumming, along with the throwing of stones and other phenomena. Now, Mompesson thought that this was or laid the blame for all of his misfortunes and this incessant banging and drumming um, blamed it on the drummer and thought it had come about through witchcraft. Well, Glanville, hearing of it, it wasn't very far away from where he lived, um, went along, looked at all of the circumstances and deduced that the drummer had nothing at all to do with it. Um, and in fact, what we're left with is one of the very first best accounts of a poltergeist case. It is a classic poltergeist that starts off with the drumming, the rapping, the banging, um, and moves through the progression of object displacement movement, of the throwing of small items. Um, but it's gone down, you know, if you just want to Google it, Google the drummer of Tedworth, T-E-D-W-O-R-T-H, Tedworth. Mm. And the story's there. But that was Glanville. Um, he also he also uh, reports on other similar phenomena. Right. He wrote the uh, Sagittarius. Seducius tri tri tri. Yeah. Yeah. Ha ha. Yeah. I can't do Latin very well. Thank you. <laughs> you know, Seducius. I actually took Latin in school. Yeah. So did I. Yeah, equally as bad as everyone. <laughs> yeah, as every other language that I've taken. So yeah, uh, that is a book that is still relevant today. But Mompe um, Glanville wasn't wasn't actually you know he was one of several at that time. He was the most prominent because of the Tedworth case mm -hmm. um, and his account of it, which brought him note some fame and notoriety. But there were others at the same time who were also um, carrying out investigations or had an interest in the paranormal. One of the most famous was Daniel Defoe. I was just going to mention him. He was the my writer of Robinson Crusoe. Mm -hmm. um, but writing under a pseudonym, Defoe wrote, uh, published in 1727. Correct. Uh, a book with the longest title i think in existence for any paranormal genre book i think it, there's about 23 words in the title uh but really? effectively it's called the study of apparitions huh, now essentially this is called an essay on the history and reality of apparitions yeah keep going. is there more to it oh god yeah there's another paragraph of title yet Oh, okay. That's all they give me in this one. So I, I all right. I, but I well, will defer to you. The interesting thing about Defoe's work is that um, Defoe is another man, or uh, you know, who is a um, he wasn't a man of the cloth, but he was a religious man. Mm -hmm. But his his outlook was very objective. He said there are things that we can't explain, but not everything that's strange is unexplainable or attributable to angels or demons. And that's what you've always said, too. 
I had a sort of kind of. Well, I'd, I'd read Defoe and Glanville, so. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's the interesting thing about it. As we mentioned, the Reverend Gladwell, I mean, he he was a, a man of the cloth. He was actually the uh, uh, chaplain to uh, Charles II and uh, a fellow of the Royal Society. Mm-hmm. So he, even though he was religious, he still would, was no. open-minded up to exactly. And, and what you find is that even, you know, right through psychical research from Glanville, uh, to the present day, men of the church whom we would associate with belief rather than science form a large body of those who are interested in psychical phenomena. And in fact, even the modern day church here in the UK has a psychical research group within it. And we know the Catholic Church has one of the most extensive ones. And and the other interesting thing is that they were also involved in astronomy and uh, mm-hmm. other sciences as well. But because they're faith-based, people don't give them credit for any of that. Well, I mean, we've got other notable authors, you know, you um, within um, the the literature. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got Hubert Thurston, who was another. There are several clerics who have written books on haunted houses and ghosts and have and have made it their business to go and investigate them for themselves. Um, the Ghost Club uh, and the SPR have both had, um, you know, very prominent members who were men of the church. Mm-hmm. And indeed, were also uh, many of the members were also po- quite senior politicians, including a number of prime ministers um, and other, uh, you know, prominent political figures. The Duke of Wellington, for example. Mm -hmm. Gladstone. I mean, it's intriguing that we look at, you know, because we're talking, you know, hundreds of years ago, and we had people that were looking at it uh, from a different point of view, not, not from the superstitious point of view, not from... Uh, you know, the legend point of view, but looking for it at a more objective point of view. And, and what's the also interesting is if you look back uh, over the history of psychical research, or if you look back over the history of ghosts, and it's interesting that you put, um, asked me to develop a presentation earlier today. I know, which isn't is, that funny how things come around? Which is why this is you know very t- uh, topical hmm. is, is that in the middle ages and this is what defoe um, cautioned his readers against that it's not always the work it's it's almost never the work of demons and angels it, because in the middle ages the common man would often associate many of these uh, paranormal uh, mompison with witchcraft other stone throwing ones were possessed by the devil or were the result of demons, um, like in the 12th century Stackpole case, which took place in Pembrokeshire, uh, which which is where I live. Um, but they were always anything that we didn't understand. We attributed to God, angels, the devil or demons. And what Glanville and Defoe had said is, whoa, 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 whoa. Weird stuff happens, but it, you know, God, angels, devils and demons 
aren't necessarily to blame. Now we're in the 22nd century, we are well past the age of enlightenment and we are in a scientific era, uh, we think. But you just watch these programs, you look at what the common uh, man and what the paranormal investigators who are in the field are putting onto social media. They are blaming devils, demons, angels and God. Mm -hmm. for what they're experiencing science right. has progressed but the common man is still when faced with something they don't understand falling back on the four you know the four corners of um, the box of blame and say and superstition yeah. so as a species we haven't really evolved very much well sorry as a society uh, we haven't really evolved better, that much, much better. <laughs> because the herd will still go with, well, I don't understand it. And I looked at all the possibilities. It must be a demon. And that's encouraged by the media, of course, because demons are good for business. Mm. But science is still out there on a limb going, whoa, 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 weird stuff happens. But it's not always to do with demons, angels, God or the devil. And we're learning all the time. I mean, on, on the morning show, too, uh, not not the past week, the week before, we were talking about lightning and things falling from the sky and everything else. And we talked about uh, fish falling from the sky. Mm. Now, one of the, the, the most accepted ones, uh, and I thought this true as well, is that the fish came from uh, water sprouts. And there is much more scientific evidence that this is false. In fact, uh, you know that Japanese uh, physicist, I, I can never remember his name. Uh, he, he, the one with the really wild hair. I know yeah, yeah, it looks like Seiji Ozawa. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he's a pretty prominent physicist. And, and he, he said that that was absolutely absurd that that occurred. And, and he gave, of course, there was a lot of different reasons. So there's a phenomena that we can't explain, but it doesn't mean there isn't natural causes for it no there is an interesting phenomenon rely i mean fish fall from the sky they mm -hmm. it's been and captured. We're talking, yeah hundreds of fish not just yeah yeah dozens. i mean it's, it's been captured on film it's been yes. captured on video mm -hmm. um, it is an irrefutable fact that fish for large numbers of fish occasionally fall from the sky uh sometimes they, they are in association with weather events sometimes and these are the most interesting ones, not. Now, as an interesting example of that anomalous um, fish appearances, I suppose you could say. Yeah, okay. Um, here in the UK, there are several uh, man-made lakes. They formed as a result of quarrying. Mm -hmm. They're a long way from any other source of water. Right. Um, and yet, these, you know, they, they, they fill up with water from, from, you know, falling from the sky. Mm -hmm. There is no recorded fall of fish. Um, they're a long way from the ocean. And they're a long way from rivers and streams. They're high up in the mountains where people are quarrying for slate. And they're full of fish. Right, isn't that amazing? Now, as far as science understands, fish can't walk across land. 
and they don't, fish don't climb mountains. Well, and actually, they can. Some species do, yeah, but the species, species that salmon, for example, right. no, and so, some other species which are found in these mountain quarry lakes mm-hmm. uh, in the United Kingdom and in other places around the world, the science is a little bit baffled. They they always resort to oh somebody must have put them in there. Yeah, that's always a good one too. Um, to uh, you know, increasingly bizarre ones like mm-hmm. the fish eggs were carried on birds. Yeah, and then the birds dropped them, and the eggs managed to you know uh, hatch, and the fish, blah blah blah. Yeah. Um, but then, but nobody's actually sure how the fish get into these lakes, you know, thousands of feet above sea mm-hmm. level, hundreds of miles inland. And, but and they get there. Exactly. And there's another instance in the, in this, this case, and I, you know, if I get the country, you know, I have problems with details and stuff, but I think believe it's a South American country and, and the fish fall is almost predictable. The, there are so many fishes that fall that the, the citizens of this country, they, they take the fish, they cook them up. It's a, it's a big deal to them. They're really happy. And so it's it's almost a predictable event. Uh, there are also in Southeast Asia, there are because of certain weather phenomena. It does. It does basically suck parts of the ocean up. And it would it would require, you know, it, you, everybody says, well, you look at a tornado and everything is brought up. It's not the same thing. We're talking about air density versus water density which is hugely different also also the vast number of fish it's not like they're all like oh let's get together we're going to be sucked up it's doesn't happen that way but there are there are certain there are certain uh, i'm sure there are certain cases that occur there are certain cases of fish fall where they have been able to track it to a weather event such as i would understand that so for example uh, like in southeast asia um, at, at a particular time of year during cyclone season, you get large shoals of anchovies, which are very small fish, all small congregated fish. to get all congregated together yep. near the surface because they come up to to mm-hmm. eat stuff and to avoid being eaten. Uh, along comes a cyclone. It dr- it sucks up huge volumes, like a giant vacuum cleaner, mm-hmm. sucks up a huge amount of and then deposits it. 10 15 20 miles inland and from the sky fall thousands of anchovy well it's fairly easy for science to figure out how they got there and what happened to them on the way yeah especially if you have weather predictions i mean whether yeah applying and you can actually determine Um, and now with you know now with doppler doppler radar but on um, some can't. of these sensors, we're talking fish that are a decent size, big enough that they can, you know, cook in frying pans and stuff like that. So yeah. it, it's it's amazing stuff. I we, mean, we we don't have all of the answers to every every puzzle. That's what I was really trying to get at, Steve. There are there are, are things we, that we haven't discovered yet. Yeah, I mean, year on year, we are learning a little, you know, ever more. Um, mm-hmm. You know, once we see through the cloud of climate change and uh, the fog of misleading information that we sometimes are given yeah. um, but for, I mean, you know. if you, you go back to Glanville's era and there were there were eminent scientists who believed that rocks could not fall from the sky right that it was impossible how can rocks rocks can't fly 
rocks can't float around in clouds because they're they're heavy and they're hard and mm-hmm. and yet rocks continue to fall from the sky nowadays we know what that is um but it did perplex men of science back you know in glanville's in glanville's time meteorites right. the difference of course between a meteor and a meteorite is a meteorite has to hit hit something and land on the earth to become a meteorite right but I mean, that's intriguing uh, because we do have these instances that we can't explain. And so would they be classified as paranormal or just unexplained? Well, they're unexplained. And the interesting thing is, once something is explained, it ceases to become an anomaly because right. you have an explanation for it. So only those things that we can't explain can ever be anomalous fair enough uh, because like meteorites as soon as we know what it is and we understand the mechanics the mechanisms by which it operates it then becomes known and then it becomes it ceases to become an anomaly but there are a heck of a lot of anomalies that we can't yet we don't have it any for example we it may not have been observed very often and sprite li- lightning sprites were an example of that for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. They they were known about, but they were so rarely observed because nobody was really looking for them. And it was only when NASA started their high flying U twos and their satellites and that we were able to get this new view of the planet and these sprites. Um, and then all this whole bank of new types of lightning were suddenly discovered yeah blue jets and green jets and sprites and it's like ball lightning we don't totally understand ball lightning we uh, well there are scientists now who say it can be it, it can be replicated predictably there is one person that actually replicated it in the laboratory, but it doesn't well, uh, explain doesn't it? all the incidents of ball lighting. So, well, to be honest with you, we can predict tornadoes, but we still, I, if I'm correct, according to a meteorolo- meteorologist, a scientist who studies weather phenomena, weather phenomena, they still don't fully understand the mechanics the, and the fluid dynamics of why these things some storms produce them and so other storms yes. which are identical don't it's it's fascinating because i actually saw a documentary and a, a huge tornado, tornado hit down I and mean, it wiped out a whole patch and this family was right in the way of it and they went into the bathroom they could hear it all around and they get up and went outside everything was devastated but their house was untouched it it, they were right in the path, everything destroyed on both sides for miles yep. and miles, and yet this house was totally untouched. This, this is a phenomenon we don't under, understand. But And even on a smaller scale, I mean, there are many examples. Let's, let's go back to mankind's or one of, you know, man-made um, huge explosions. Hiroshima, Nagasaki, the two okay. atom bombs. Yeah. Now, you, we are told that those things, that if a bomb goes off, it's going to wipe out absolutely everything. 
within so many square miles in a radius around the explosion. And yet in the middle, right beneath the bomb, stood a building with a dome, a church. And when the bomb went bang, the building was still there. Really? I, was, I wasn't aware of that. And it, and it yeah. became a memorial to, um, uh, to you know, peace. Which, which city was that in? Do you, do you That's know? in Hiroshima. Hiroshima? I got to look that and up. And, I, and, and the, building, the, building, the building survives to this day. Um, it had, you know, it had the roof removed. I'm sure we did. <laughs> but, but the majority of the building right at blast ground zero, ground zero. survived. That's and a, that's and that's and there are numerous instances where um, people have been in close proximity to explosions, very big explosions, mm-hmm. railway disasters. There was one in California um, that was quite notable, I think, in the 80s when a rail uh, rail uh, Rail truck full of um, nitro, uh, some volatile chemical. Okay, uh, blew up in a small township and wiped out most of the town except for some houses, which were very close, and others that were just a few, you know a few miles away. Um, so all the surrounding properties were completely; they were just wiped, erased from from. Uh, the land yeah and yet for some reason these buildings remain due to the dynamics of the blast i mean it's amazing i mean we 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 think of uh you know the power of nature and everything but there are there are a lot of disasters caused by man for instance the halifax explosion and of course the galveston which is absolutely huge and could be felt all the way into utah uh so i mean it's not necessarily have to be bombs to wipe out an area i mean you know let, let's give us our dues. If you know, if it's worth screwing up, you can we can do it. Like, we can do it. You know, if it if it can That's go bang, if it can go bang, fall over, leak, or you know, generally make an unholy mess of itself, mm-hmm. um, we are we are pretty good at it. But you know, nature, volcanoes. Look at uh, Mount St Helens, mm-hmm. um, and you know killed what was it 60 or 70 people including a volcanologist who was on the slopes of mount st helens mm-hmm. uh, when it went when it went off right place, uh, right and, and yet families camping very near to him the, the tent remained standing upright i know that's amazing absolutely amazing stuff all down to you know the way that the blast happened the way that the air moved the way that the blast wave moved the way it was deflected ricocheted bounced um there off, are people off. who survived the 9-11 they followed the collapse of the towers they were in the towers when they collapsed and survived yeah, incredible i mean if somebody said i'm going to drop the world trade center on top of you um and you're going to be fine and yet people came out of that without so much as a scratch I know it's simply amazing stuff. Utterly incredible. Well, we have just about run out of time, so uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been interesting. I, I it's been a blast. I learned a, I love it. <laughs> the uh, I learned a couple of things about the uh, uh, that that early ghost club or whatever it was from Syria uh, that I had never heard of before, and uh, I'm I intrigued think, about. So I think the big take home from this is. Reading is good for you. Reading is good. I should do more of it, Steve. Don't you? You should. You should. Mm-hmm. You definitely should. 
Look at look at the, the only problem is you're going to have a wobbly table again because you're going to pull out the books from under. The, oh uh, no! Please don't say that to me. I'd have to read them. Yeah, I know. Do we have any last words? I think about them, but uh, you know the. It's so funny. We were, we were talking about stuff going on the skies and everything. One of the things that I always remember from one of the few books that I read, of course, was Dobie Gillis. And the seagulls used to drop clams on the house to platinum. I mean, to break them open. So that's where they would find all these clams falling from the skies. Yeah, they don't do that here now. They just steal your ice creams. They steal your ice creams? Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. The, we have uh, one of our uh, coastal towns now has got anti-seagull netting strewn above the uh, streets. Get out of here. Yeah, I'm deadly serious. Wow. All right. So I suppose we should go. I suppose we should. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for Ghost Chronicles second edition in a couple of minutes. Uh, we'll be looking at uh, Twilight Zone episodes that came true. So thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next show for the last word. (laughs) And that's my last word. You copped out. I did. to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us, good lord.